Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. My name's Jenny Tennyson. I'm CEO here at the Open Data Institute. Welcome to ODI Fridays today. Um, we run these lectures every week and put them online and uh, hope that you come back to another one. Today uh, we have a, a talk from Imran Gulam Hussainwala who is going to be talking to us about open banking. Open banking is something that is really close to our hearts here at ODI. We were involved in the initial Fingleton report that went into Treasury to talk about open banking. We co-chaired on the Open Banking Working Group and gave advice to the Treasury and the CMA about um, how to implement the recommendations of that report. And so seeing how open banking has, has been implemented and how it's taking off is something that we're, we're really, really interested in. Um, so I'm delighted to have Imran here. Uh, please do tweet during the talk on the hashtag ODI Fridays um, and, uh, and keep up your questions for, for later on uh, at the end of the talk. Thank you very much, Imran. <clears throat> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you, everyone, um, for being here. My name is Imran Ghulam Hussainwala. I've, I've had some practice in saying that. Um, but please do call me Imran. It's so much easier. Um, just a quick word on who I am. Introduce myself. So um, I, I wear two hats. Um, my predominant day job is that I, um, at Ernst & Young, uh, EY, the big accounting firm, where I run our fintech practice globally. Um, but I've been doing something very interesting over the course of the last seven months, which is that I've been seconded to uh, open banking. Um, and I'd like to tell you a little bit today about what open banking is. And even in the financial services industry, some people still regard it as the best kept secret within financial services. Um, but it is, it, there's two things that I think you should take away about open banking. One, that it is truly transformative. And two, that it is imminent. Um, and what I'd like to do now is spend probably about 20 or 30 minutes giving you an update on where we are, um, maybe talk a little bit about why we're doing it as well. And, um, but absolutely ask you to ask me questions because um, typically when I talk to people about open banking, I'm talking to people in the financial services industry. And I'm sure some of you here are in that industry, but many of you are not. And one of the things that I'd really like to do is use open banking as a way of uniting all these different uh, disciplines um, because fundamentally they all will need to work together if this is going to work. So I've got a few slides which I probably will stand here so I'm not covering them um, just to help me talk through these a little bit. I'll, I'll stick moderately to these slides. So um, open banking has got a great title but what does it mean? When I explained to my mum that I was working in open banking she thought that meant she could go to a bank on Sundays. That's not what it means. Open banking um, is a fundamental change in the way that consumers and SMEs will be able to bank. It means that consumers are going to be able to take control of their data and access their data in a way that suits them and they're going to be able to execute payments, so execute banking activities themselves not needing to use their own bank. Now that sounds like a, a, an awful paradox but I'll explain what I mean in a bit more detail. So let's talk about the data element first. So when it comes to data I think there's been a fundamental recognition in the UK, but globally as well, and really, frankly, over the last 10 years, that the data the financial institution holds on the customer belongs to the customer and not the financial institution. So if you as an individual or as an SME, as a customer of a bank, want to use that data, you should be able to use that data in the way that um, best suits you. 
Conversely, if you don't want to use that data, that's also fine too. You should be able to control the way that data is used. And what we're trying to do in open banking is give individuals the tools to be able to do that. It's a grand statement, so I'm going to explain a little bit not only how we do it, but how we're going to get the industry to work to this. Then the second thing is um, about making payments. So financial institutions do an awful lot of things, and one of the things they do is they execute payments. And executing payments is fundamentally critical to be able to do something with this additional data you've got. If you want to create a new overdraft, a new mortgage, a new subscription service, then you actually need to be able to access your payments at the mo as well. Now, the only way you currently can access your payments is by going to your bank. Now, your bank might sit on your smartphone or in your wallet in the shape of a card, but it's still fundamentally controlled by your bank. And what we do in open banking is we say that you as an individual can authorize a third party to execute transactions on your behalf. So just take one step back. If, say, you've got a favorite fintech, and that fintech enables you to take money out uh, cheaply abroad or to send money to friends, um, or provides you with information on, the, on your own spending habits and helps ensure that at the end of the month you don't keep going overdrawn, then you can give permission to that fintech to connect with your bank to be able to access your data for only that purpose in a safe and secure way so they can provide you that information. And you can use that fintech or that third party to also then execute payments on your behalf. And it will come clear as, as we go through this. Um, so how do, we, how do we make this all happen? Um, it's, it, because it is obviously complex. The way that we make it happen is that we are creating a set of standards that all the banks, I say all the banks, I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, the majority of the banks in the UK are going to have to comply with. And those standards are essentially governed the way that a whole bunch of APIs work, and those APIs will allow third parties in a safe and secure way to be able to access the banks on your behalf. So if you're a bank, you've got a branch, you've got a telephone, you've got an online, you've got an app, this is yet another channel. It's the API channel. We're bringing APIs to financial services. So these third-party fintechs will now be able to access these financial services. Um, and I will spend a lot of time talking about the security elements of what we're doing. The privacy elements are absol absolutely fundamentally important. Um, and the for the moment, I'll come back to it, but for the moment, what I want to stress is that the, the fundamental architecture that we've created means that the, we put the customer at the center of this and we put the customer in control. So things will only happen if the customer gives consent. And that consent is explicit consent, and it's consent in plain English, and it's consent that really draws on the principles of GDPR, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, it's not 30 or 40 pages of terms and conditions. The other thing that we do that's fundamentally important in open banking is we don't require any consumer that wants to take advantage of this to share their username and password with a third party. It's our view that usernames and passwords are private and they're private between the consumer, the SME, and also the bank and they're not for sharing with third parties. But anecdotally, we do know that people do do this. So in a world where open banking doesn't exist in the way that I've described it, we know that there are still third parties, fintechs, that offer um, fantastic uh, informational-based products to consumers. We call them personal financial managers. You may be familiar with them. And they do 
take the information from your accounts, aggregate it together and present it back to the individual. The way that they do that is they screen scrape. Um, and what screen scraping means is that they pop open your bank account as if you were you because you've given them your username and password. And then they pull that information off the screen. The bank is unsure as to whether they're dealing with you, as, well as to whether it's you looking at your own information or a third party. This third party happens to be a robot. They pull that information, they aggregate it, and they feed it back to you. We're getting rid. So two million people in this country currently do that. They feel that they're getting so much value from this aggregation service that they are willing to give over their username and password. Now, I don't think it should be two million. I think it should be 20 million. But the reason the 18 million, or thereabouts, don't do it is because they don't want to share these credentials, and they're right. So what we're doing by bringing APIs into this space is allowing those kind of um, uh, businesses to actually address a much broader market and provide value to their consumers. So I will keep coming back to the security point and the privacy point and, and other technical elements that we've done in order to support that. So I hope now that I've given you a little bit of a sense of what open banking is, it's probably helpful just to talk a little bit about open banking why. Um, I'm not sure if I've got a slide on this. Yeah, I, I'm going I'm to work with this slide actually. So th this really goes, why are we doing this? What are we fundamentally trying to build here? And what we're trying to build is a vision endorsed by government, which is to create a fair and competitive landscape for financial services. So one way of thinking about the data and the payments element is that these represent barriers to entry to new entrants. So we want to level the playing field. How do we level the playing field? Well, the APIs that we create are standards. Anyone can access them. Sorry, I'll be very clear. Any authorized entity, and I mean authorized and regulated by the FCA, can access them. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. But providing you are an authorized or regulated new entrant into the market, you will be able to access them. So there's a good competition argument as to why you want to do all this. But what about the consumer? What is it actually going to mean for the end consumer and the SME? And in actual fact, even though there are fewer SMEs than there are consumers, there's a lot of SMEs, but still fewer than there are consumers, the value to the SMEs is possibly even greater in the near term. They do represent, when I think about segments in financial services, probably one of the most underserved uh, segments within financial services. So what, what can we do? We talk about here that open banking will allow these participants to move, manage, make more of their money. That's all entirely true because you're reducing the barriers to friction for all that happening. I'll give you another sense of thinking about it. The other sense of thinking about it is that it will allow um, uh, consumers, SMEs, to actually more easily find the right financial services products. So I don't know how many people here in this room can put their hand on the heart and say, yes, I've got the right current account. I mean, it's an interesting question. Does anyone believe that they have the right current account? Do you think perhaps you're paying too much for your overdraft? Are you getting the right level rate of interest on your current account? It's hard to say. It's really hard to say because it's hard to compare. It's hard to know what your, uh, what your behavior would look like under a new account. Is that rewards package actually worthwhile? Um, have I got the right overdraft limit? Uh, am I getting the right level of texting services or should I be looking for something else? So open banking will help on that, but it's not just about current accounts. And in fact, 
most people, and we've seen this in the UK for a very long time, when it comes to current account switching, it's not what gets people excited. It doesn't move the dial enough for most people, and that's fair enough. But what we are doing in open banking is also helping people find the right products for them when it comes to credit cards, mortgages, uh, overdrafts. These are bigger items. They really do move the dial. If you're on the wrong credit card, it can be very painful. Um, and I look, when I look at the credit card industry, um, on average now, you can get about 40 months free interest if you take out a new credit card. You've got to be a certain type of borrower for sure. But at the same time in the UK, the average hold on a credit card is 12 years. How do you, that just doesn't make sense, doesn't reconcile. And when the government look at this, they wonder if consumers are being given enough information in order to make those decisions. So under open banking, one element of what we do is we make it easier for customers, SMEs, to figure out whether they're on the right product. But then the second thing we do, which is as important, is we also make it easy to switch to the right products. There's one thing, knowing that you're on the wrong products, that's actually just quite upsetting. But you've got to, you want to need to, we want to be able to do something about it. And the doing something about it is also something that what we're trying to do in open banking is trying to facilitate that too. And it's not always about switching, but it is always, but because you have the payments elements wrapped into what we're creating, it allows you to actually do something with the information. So actually move to a different product, set up a new direct debit, a new subscription service, credentialize yourself in an entirely new way. So without the payments bit, you need the payments piece and the data bit to come together. So if that's about making sure you're on the right product, and then it's making you able you to switch to the right product, that, I feel, is where the killer apps are going to be in the near term for open banking. But there is a, a further iteration of this, which is banking is so central to what we do. I mean, of course, the products haven't really changed for 100 years, and you still sit in branches, and banks like to present themselves as these kind of almost separate from the real world, but that's not true. Everything in finance, no one wants to go out and take out a mortgage for the sake of taking out a mortgage. You want it because you want to buy the house. You don't want the, the loan. You actually want the kitchen or the car or whatever it is. And actually being able to embed financial services into these other things that people really care about. So turn financial services into a facilitator of all those other activities is really, I think, where this begins to get exciting. And that's fundamentally what we mean when we talk about digitizing financial services. You say that to any bank and they go, well, that's ridiculous. Financial services have been digital for decades. It's probably the first industry to go digital. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about digitizing financial services. So actually putting it into other, embedding financial services into lots of other products. I mean, why do you actually need the financial services infrastructures that currently exist? It's only there to serve a purpose and by digitizing it, we can get it into those areas. <coughs> but there's a long, long way to go from where we are now to try and get to this kind of grand vision. Of course, the killer apps are going to be the interesting ones. They're the ones that I think we're going to hear about in the coming months and years. But it is nice to have a vision that we're working to. Another element of that vision could be that you actually get to a stage where you begin to look at something called platform banking. Now, this is pretty much a hypothesis. But if you were to design financial services from the ground up now, in a world of Uber and Google and um, understanding the way that all these APIs and different firms work together, you probably wouldn't create the monolithic utility-style pipes businesses that you have now, the vertically integrated businesses. You create something a lot broader, a lot more open. You create these platforms that would now allow 
different producers and consumers to come together to offer each other services. And actually, you know, what underpins that is an API and its standards. So I'm not suggesting that open banking will deliver platform banking, um, but certainly when I speak to some of the more innovative financial services businesses out there, for example, Starling and so on, they are creating marketplace banking. So if you become a customer of that bank, using APIs, that bank draws in products from lots of other different providers for whom it says, I don't, I don't want to provide cash withdrawal you know, in, uh, outside of the UK. I don't want to provide foreign exchange. I don't want to provide overdrafts that aren't within my risk tolerance. That's an entirely legitimate thing for them to say, but their customers need it. So why shouldn't their customers be able to use it through all these different providers? So I've, I've, I've really moved quite quickly through a lot of kind of different concepts there to try and bring it together. Um, but I think it's always helpful to try and understand a little bit about why we're doing this and what it could mean for the consumer. But I guess the next question is going to be the how are we doing this? And that's equally complex because this is an industry that's existed for, well, I'm not sure when it didn't exist. And also, it has many, many different stakeholders. Of course, consumers, banks themselves. We've got non-banks that operate in financial services. You've got the fintechs, never forget the regulators and government as well. And all of these people, all these entities really need to be brought together uh, at the same time. So the way that we've done it in the UK is we have um, leveraged two pieces of European legislation and one government entity. Kind of put that in the pot and mix it up. The two pieces of legislation, the one that you'll all be familiar with is GDPR. I won't go into that. And the other one is the Payment Services Directive 2, PSD2. Um, not well named or branded, but a transformative piece of legislation that really enshrines the fact that consumers can access their accounts through third parties. You don't need to go to your bank to be able to access your bank. It's, it's quite a paradox. It's quite hard to understand it uh, at first blush. But a lot of work has, been, has gone into that. Um, and that legislation goes live on the 13th of January, first part of it, 13th of January, 2018. So that's, that was two months, two weeks ago. Oh, sorry, two months, a couple of days ago. Um, and the second half of PSD2 goes live 18 months or so thereafter that. It's a bit of a rolling start. GDPR goes live in May. And the combination of those two things, the way that I tend to think about it is if you've got PSD2 governs the payments element, GDPR governs, governs the data element, you put the payments and data together and you've got open banking. Now in the UK, when we looked at that, we thought this is, this is fantastic, this is transformative. Um, this is exactly the kind of catalyst for innovation, choice, competition that you'd want. But it did stop short of a couple of things. One is that neither of those two pieces of regulation determine what technology you should use. They are technology agnostic, and for good reason. You know, the principle that the European legislators came up with is that we don't want to define what technology the market should use. We'll get it wrong. The market should choose. I understand that. But there is a very clear technology, and it is APIs. And, the, and one of the problems is when you don't define what the banks should do, um, they will then make their own choices, and that leads to uh, lots of different technologies being, using, being used. 
And that leads to the second point, which is standards. Nothing in PSD2 or GDPR talks to standards. It doesn't require or request banks to work to a common standard. It just says that they need to offer that access and it needs to be electronic. And of course, if you do that, all that really happens is you just create, amongst the 6,000 banks in Europe, every single one of them having a slightly different shopfront window. And if you're one of these third parties, let's say that you're a small third party, you don't need to be, but let's say you're a small one, the idea of figuring out who to connect to, when to roll that all out, changes as they come through, becomes a nightmare. Effectively, in the UK, I don't think we thought it would work. So we decided that we were going to do two things, that we were going to make it API-based, and also we were going to make it standards-based. And, the, um, and then the final thing that we were going to do is that we were going to mandate it. And the way that we mandated it is um, as a result of the competition and markets investigation into retail banking, which was approximately a two-year investigation, uh, they found that there were um, elements of uh, competition that could be done better by the banks and that they were going to mandate a set of remedies. And those remedies were created um, a, a year and a half ago. And um, the banks, by law, have to meet the requirements uh, of the CMA order. So we've got the, the Competition Markets Authority order, plus these two pieces of legislation, and that together creates open banking. And this is very UK specific. No one else in the world is, is um, approaching the situation like this. I don't for a moment believe that elsewhere in the world, this isn't a hot issue. Because that fundamental truism that the data belongs to the customer and not to the financial institution is, is pretty much the accepted norm everywhere I go to in the world. But it's only here that we're creating a standard and it's API-based and mandating it. So in January, the first um, one of those, the first um, uh, tranche of functionality uh, is going to go live and it's going to cover 80 to 90% of the UK market with one standard that's going to allow consumers to work with third parties to be able to access open banking. Um, the entity that is building open banking, which is the one that I am the implementation trustee of, is called the Open Banking Implementation Entity, aptly named. Um, and that is a team of circa 100 engineers based in St. Catherine's Dock here in London. And what they are doing is um, working, we are working with the nine largest banks to make sure that we create the standards that work for them, has to work for them as well, uh, and that they can implement against it. Uh, and that entity is funded under the CMA order by the banks, but it is independent of the banks, and through me is responsible, its fiduciary responsibility is back to the Competition and Markets Authority. So that's a little bit about the structure as to how we're doing it. Um, what I'd like to do is talk, actually just touch on the security element, because it may well be that that's something that we spend more time talking about. But I mentioned a couple of important pillars. We don't ask a customer to ever share their username and password. We think that is a good thing. When a customer, if a customer wants to use any facet of open banking, they have to give their explicit consent in plain English. And if they don't want to use it, they don't have to. Again, we think that's a good thing and the right way to do it. Um, if a, um, a customer should be able to see all the permissions that they've granted. So what we're also developing are permissions dashboards, whereby in exactly the same way you might recognize it from your iPhones, that um, 
location services are often requested by apps, but there's a central place where you can go to and you can see all the apps you've given your permission to see your location and you can revoke it at any point. We're creating something similar for open banking, so you will be able to go back to the bank that you've given these permissions to access and see all these third parties that have you've given them permission to and revoke it at source. The other thing that we do, which is really important, is that we've created something, a whitelist for fintechs. So banks can be confident that they're only dealing with regulated third parties, regulated fintechs, for whom uh, the FCA has authorised them. So customers can trust a regulated entity and that regulated entity can be trusted by the bank. Um, and then the final thing as well is that we're creating a customer redress framework. So in the unlikely but unfortunately um, unfortunate situation that a customer suffers um, a redress, so the payment is the wrong amount, it's gone to the wrong time, it's gone to the wrong entity, they will be able to seek redress from that stood behind by the banks. If the data, in a similar way that if the data has also gone to the wrong entity, something hasn't worked, it's the wrong data, the wrong advice has been given on the back of data that was inaccurate, there's also a whole bunch of, uh, there's a whole framework for customer address around that. So we're thinking about as much as we can upfront, but essentially January is going to be the MVP of open banking. It's going to be a slow burn, but a burn that's actually going to, I think, run for a very long time. And we're going to learn, evolve, and allow this thing to grow, this ecosystem to grow. And the ecosystem will only grow insofar as people use it. So we're trying to make sure that we do everything we can up front, think through up front, to make sure that it works for customers and also works for these third parties. And it is great wearing my fintech hat um, when I look at the UK to see that there are, what, 1,500, at least 1,500 fintechs actually predominantly based here in, in, in the UK, here in London, um, that are working, uh, that see the value of open banking to their existing propositions and their new propositions. And they are the ones that are going to put a lot of the excitement and dynamism, dynamism into the ecosystem. So on that note, I think I probably will stop. Um, I think there's a lot more to talk about, but do we have any questions? Um, how are you going to um, measure whether it's been, what are the metrics around whether open banking has been successful in the market? So what we're going to do a lot of measuring. So we, we like all fintechs. Um, so I should say we're, we're very decentralized. So all we're doing is setting the standards. But what we can do is we can request all those participants in the ecosystem to put MI, bring MI back to us. So I think we're going to have a really good sense of what is working where and also what is not working. Um, unlike other remedies, the Competition Markets Authority haven't given us a target. Right? And there's very good reason for that. This is not something that's been running for a while and they want to make more efficient. This is not something that they can see in another geography that they want to bring over here. So they don't know what an appropriate target. They said we can set a target, but how would we know it's the right target? So we don't at the moment have a target. But my expectation is that once the ecosystem is up and running and settles down, then we're going to be able to look at those adoption rates and figure out if, if enough promotion is going into it or not enough promotion is going into it. Are there any sort of 
consumer outcomes that you're looking in terms of sort of financial inclusion or financially vulnerable groups that would sort of maybe dictate some of the successes around open banking? Yes, for sure. So if, if, you, if you go back to the competition and markets, or, so there's nothing in PSD2 around that. Um, but if you go back to the order, they identified two primary areas where they didn't think, there's probably three primary areas where they didn't think there was enough competition. Uh, unauthorized or unarranged overdrafts, which are very penal for a small segment of society. Um, and I would absolutely expect open banking to have an impact there. We can talk about how that works later on. Then at the other end of the social spectrum, you've got uh, high balance accounts in zero interest paying accounts. Um, and those uh, should, those, they recognize that there was a lack of competition in that market. And then for SMEs specifically, it was those two elements, plus also their inability to access credit from other providers. So when the Competition Markets Authority look back on the efficacy of the order, those are the three areas they would look at. Name and where you're from when you make your question. Thanks. Um, Wei from Birmingham. Um, I'm interested in the representation of fintech firms in this agenda. Um, I would like to ask, uh, I, I assume there's uh, quite a few large banks in the CMA now and is leading the uh, position of open banking. Can I ask, what, how do you, would you like to consider a uh, mechanism that the fintech can propose ideas and to make the API workable for them? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think if I understand the the um, from from the very outset, we have been very very careful to ensure that we get the thinking of fintechs, third parties, and not just third parties, into what we're doing, so we can create a real balance. This 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 can't afford to be a bank project. If it's, it's been tried before, for those of you that are aware, there was something that was called My Data which was essentially a bank project to allow consumers to um, uh, be able to access their data. But even though it met the requirement at the time, it didn't meet the objective. So the, 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 the user journey, the proposition to the end consumer was, was, wasn't very good. This time, what we've done is we've created a, the governance of the open banking implementation entity actually has at its heart fintech representation, consumer representation, regulatory representation, in addition to the CMA9, which is what we call the nine largest banks, representation from them. And then essentially what my job is to do is to try and get consensus around all those stakeholders. And if we can get consensus, we work on that. If we can't get consensus, then I make recommendations to the CMA and we move forward on that basis. So it is, we, have a, we have a good relationship with the banks but it is necessarily an independent and arm's length one. Thank you. Joe Santiago from London. I think it's, it's recording. Okay. Um, you, you did mention um, JDPR uh, as well as uh, PSD2 as being the two pillars you know, to, uh, to help with the open banking. But we also know that JDPR, for example, uh, there is a kind of non, uh, UK is leading in that in that category as well, and it's going to come into effect only in March, uh, in, May in May next yeah. year. And we also know that uh, most institutions are not ready even for that one. So how are you going to um, combine uh, something that uh, at the moment we don't know how it's going to pan up, for example, 
plus, uh, you know, so, so we're going to have two things in here, the open, open um, banking, if you like, plus the, G, uh, the GDPR, which uh, uh, nobody knows uh, how it's going to work, besides the point that uh, there are also no consensus in terms of uh, uh, other, let's say, Western countries with regards to GDPR. How do you think we're going we're gonna to work there, or how are you going uh, to make the most of those five months of next year, since yeah. his MVP is going to be in, in your MVP is going to be in, in January. That's right. So, so the, the the way that we think about it is GDPR does covers an awful lot. Like there's so much of GDPR that's not relevant to what we do. M the most obvious bit is that GDPR covers all industries, and open banking is just financial services. So there is nothing that open banking is doing that will allow a company to meet. To, let's say offload or meet its requirements for GDPR through open banking. We look at it the other way around. GDPR enshrines a whole bunch of different principles, but the principle that we care most about is the principle of data portability. Right? So what we do effectively, and also actually around permissioning and consents, and those two pieces, actually there's good clarity. You know, I, I don't agree that GDPR isn't very clear. Companies may not know how to implement it, I agree with that, but GDPR is pretty clear in terms of its principles and so on. So we take those two elements and we've used our, everything that we do in terms of permissioning and consent conforms with GDPR requirements. Um, and then uh, everything around portability actually also conforms with GDPR's compliance. Let, but, but it's only one mechanism for doing it. So we're not taking away anyone's any, any individual company's requirements to comply with GDPR. Let me give you a, a, an example. GDPR under data portability, it, it gives you, the consumer, the right to access the data that the company holds on you. Fine. But it doesn't say, again, guess what, how it's done. Doesn't, doesn't mandate standards. And in fact, even you know, one interpretation of it is that you can, if a customer asks for their data, they can actually put it in the post. And as long as it gets to you within 30 days, then they've met their requirements. Right? So GDPR doesn't, doesn't mean that you then have to do it in an API and an open banking API. But what we've done is we've built our open banking APIs so that they can facilitate that part of GDPR. So the GDPR gives us the, um, the legitimacy to build it, and then the technology provides back to the company a, an ability to comply with it. So it's going to take a while to pan out, but you know, we're not solving GDPR for companies here. No, no, no. I mean, uh I was not expecting that, but more importantly is the fact that uh, uh, there is a kind of a disagreement, kind of a disagreement between the lawyers and the technologists in, in that thread. I think it's going to last for a while. <coughs> there always is, and it will last for a while. <laughs> and um, sometimes what we think is actually just, just build the technology and then have the discussion. So I'm Nick from the National Audit Office. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating topic. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me, I thought, I wonder what the impact's going to be on the public sector. Because, you know, there's lots of government departments that make payments or have sort of financial interactions with citizens. And presumably, if, if it's easier to do because it's kind of an API system, I wonder what kind of would happen in the medium term. I, I, I don't know, it's just pure speculation, but I don't know whether you've had any thoughts along those lines. So not, I haven't had any thoughts specifically about the public sector, I think the public sector is actually the biggest payment initiator in the UK. Um, so, you know, it's a big, it's a, it has a very vested interest and important role to play. In fact, actually, 
They're doing a lot of work with something called the new payment services operator to make sure there's a payment architecture that works for them. We are not fundamentally um, uh, redesigning the pipes of payments within the UK. We are the front end, right? We're the, we're the payment initiation service. And it's those APIs that can be used. Now, I think there's going to be a whole ton of use cases. Um, we, uh, we brainstorm them over the open banking implementation entity, but we only do that so that we can try and, and ensure that all the technology we create is adaptable for other parties to use that, but we're not trying to create it. In some senses, what we're doing here is a little bit like GPS, in the, sen in the sense that we're trying to make it available, and then it's going to be the, for these third parties to innovate on the back of it. And public sector probably won't be the first to go, maybe, just an idea. But at the same, at the same time, I think that very quickly they'll be see, the, see the kind of things that other entities are able to do with it. And then consumers, and this is a big question, if consumers become familiar and comfortable with it, then there are going to be opportunities around that. Just yesterday it was mentioned actually, you know, banks, are they moving quickly enough? Well, we, we've got a crisis in, around universal credit at the moment. You know, and universal credit is a timing issue that should be solvable by financial services. You know, where are the third parties, sorry, where are the banks that are solving that particular issues under open banking? You've got the dynamism in the market, so actually maybe it is third parties, fintechs, or even, frankly, a big bank, but a big bank moving quicker than its competitors and serving its competitors' customers without having to have them switch. That's the kind of dynamism we want to get in the market. Sophie Morrison from Manifesto Growth. Um, question, you mentioned this sort of uh, permissions dashboard. Would that sit sort of with the sort of your under the open banking impartial party or will it sort of feed into the systems of banks? Or how will that sort of work in the So, So neither. What, what, it, what it does is it actually um, sits... So open banking implementation entity, we took a decision early on not to go down a centralized model. Other than a centralized standard setting and governance entity um, and this thing called, well, it, I, I referred to it earlier as a whitelist. Um, that's the only central infrastructure that we have. Um, the, it, it's, it's actually really quite simple, is that um, the bank will have a permission dashboard for all of the permissions that the customer has requested that bank to give and then there will be another dashboard that's held by uh, I'm going to call it a third party or the fintech the third party um, for whom all the permissions have been granted to it so if you go to the bank you're going to find I just I use the term fintechs I mean the, the, this is an ASPSP and that's a TPP but I won't so the bank to your bank, you'll see all the fintechs you can permission to. Go to the fintech, you'll see all the banks that it is accessing data from. So similar to your payments, your payment data. When you switch accounts, you'll just switch your permissions. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 and on the bank one, it's not that dissimilar from your direct debits. So you'll see, see all your, we call them trusted beneficiaries, but that's essentially the same thing. I'm trying to keep everything as familiar as possible. Um, and also, you know, um, a bit of redundancy in there. So if you're, you're a customer, you know, I've given this crazy app, you know, the, this app, really exciting, we all do it, you know, a week later I think I want nothing to do with that app anymore. It was it promised me loads of stuff, nothing happened at all. I gave it permission, I want to stop it. You can either go to your bank and stop it, or you can go to the app. 
Stop it. Did you have a question? No. Another question over here. I think this will be the last one. I heard you mentioned the credit data as well um, in your presentation. Sorry, um, credit data, do you say? Yes, apart from the payment data. And I assume you were talking about SMEs when you using the phrases. Can I ask if you are open the uh, the credit data for both individual uh, clients and the SMEs, or is it going to be only SMEs in the future, or none of them? Can can clarify that credit yeah, data? Yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, I, I, um, uh, I, I wasn't clear enough. The there is no credit data at all that is being made, av made available via open banking. So credit data, in my mind, is a <coughs> derivative of basic input data, raw data, and it is the um, sophistication of the algorithms and the data set that the institutions own, whereby they then create credit scores. Now that doesn't belong to the customer. That, that is work that has been done by the, in, the institution that you're dealing with that have created their own credit score. That belongs to them, okay? So what, what we are doing is enabling the information that belongs to the customer to flow. Now that information, transaction data, is fundamentally crucial to credit decisioning and then credit actioning. Credit decisioning for creating a score, credit actioning for things like affordability tests and suitability tests. Right, so it's incredibly valuable in that area. But if you are working, so I say working, if you're a customer of a bank and you've got a mortgage from them, they will have a credit score on you. I'm not saying that you can expose that credit score through open banking. Does that make sense? Exactly. Hi, Carlos from Open Vector. Just a quick question there for you. Uh, open banking has been, we've been talking about Open Vector in other regions for probably the last four years. The one key thing that, uh, that makes it different is that in the other regions, it's really been driven by the banks and with the customers. Customers have been at the forefront. They've, been, they've known about open banking since day one. Uh, in the UK, though, we do talk a lot about the fintechs, the regulation. But the customers themselves are very are not aware of it. We know that it's been live since January. We've done very little uh, to really expose, and I mean, us as consumers, I've, I've received very little information from our banks. How do you see that changing? Because that's really been something interesting. I just got back from the Nordics, and they, they see open banking as, well, we've been doing this for a long time, but we've always held a customer at the forefront. They've been part of this, and they understand it. They've been, they know what it, what it is. We don't have that same communication here. How do you see that changing? Yeah, no, I, I, I do see it changing. Um, I see it changing largely because customers aren't going to be, we, we don't think that customers are going to be particularly excited to learn about open banking, but they are going to be very excited to learn about all the tools and propositions that are meaningful to them. They might be powered by open banking. I hope that they will be powered by open banking. But the idea that we can excite the UK population on this kind of esoteric kind of plumbing element of open of financial services feels to me to be a real stretch. So what we're trying to do is we're essentially trying to create, ensure that we can make all the, create all the elements that will sustain and catalyze an ecosystem. And then it's those third parties that are going to come onto it. And those are the ones that are incredibly skilled at creating propositions and marketing them directly to consumers. Now, what we need to ensure is that we've also then got a central 
repository, if you like, of information, of collateral, uh, of consumer comms, that if a consumer says, wow, that sounds really interesting, um, sounds, how do they do that? It's too good to be true. Can I trust it? They can come to a central place and better understand what's going on. Um, rather than go to the fintechs themselves, who've got one perspective, or go directly to the banks themselves, who have another perspective, and the consumer will just get very confused. So we at the Open Banking Implementation Entity are creating that central repository, website, comms, FAQs, all of those kind of things to give customers confidence in what they're doing. But what, we, what we're not, not going to do is promote open banking. To use the GPS analogy, it'd be a little bit like promoting GPS, but actually people want to know where their taxi is or where they park their car or how, which direction to walk in. They don't really care about the underlying technology. Thank you ever so much, Emma. Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.